Welcome to Ludicrously Specific, where we're slipping back in 2023 and talking about two films that are connected in some strange way. Yes, we are lazy. Yes. <laughs> I'm Doug, and my favorite Martin Scorsese film is Casino. And I'm Steve, and my favorite Martin Scorsese film is After Hours. And I'm Darren, and my favourite Martin Scorsese film is also After Hours, but King of Comedy is brilliant too. And you could probably list about six yeah. more after yeah. that. Yeah. He was really not. <laughs> Bring out other, the dead is also. Suggesting other things we could talk about because he didn't want to decide on his favourite Martin Scorsese. But, uh, yeah. yeah, and it, what's interesting is Skeet originally proposed the. Uh, Opening thing, our favorite film that's not Goodfellas, which we inadvertently also filled that role anyway. <laughs> I kind of thought one of us at least would pick Goodfellas as the favorite because it is. I mean, like, no Goodfellas, no Taxi Driver, film. no Raging Bull. Yeah, well, no well, Raging Bull. I've heard of that film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No Raging Bull. Yeah, wait, I've seen that one. <laughs> no Hugo. Oh. It was yeah, okay. If you remember back to our last episode, my um, the first film I saw of the year was Casino, which. Uh, Doug actually lent to me a, a beautiful uh, 4K, which I, I watched between the hours of, I think I started at 11pm and just went through the night, a three-hour right, wow. film, and it was just it was just brilliant. I just, have you seen Kasinowski? I think I have um, back on, probably on the Sky Movie Days, so probably not since then. So it is, it's definitely on my shortlist of movies to watch again in 2023, because I'm definitely thinking of going back over those as I mentioned the last time around that I was going to be looking at some movies that I hadn't seen in 10 or 15 or 20 years and re-watching some old favourites so Casino's definitely up there with it I, I do want to watch Goodfellas again this year yeah. because it's been about mm. 10 years since I've seen it and it's, 10 years yeah. is about right with Goodfellas it's overly familiar I think because it's mm. been co-opted so much yeah. whereas Casino hasn't quite as much and so I find it actually more rewatchable. Um, and also just I just love De Niro's character because he's such the opposite of the brash, like, guy swinging his dick mm. around and so many <laughs> other things. He just, like, he wants to keep his head down and he wants people to do a good job and leave him alone. He is awesome, <laughs> but let's face it, he may be one of the most unconvincing Jewish people <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I that, that, That's the joke, though, right? Is that Martin Scorsese, like, is, like... And, and also like, the Irishman. Everyone, <laughs> everyone else is like, oh... He's a, De Niro's an Italian, and he's like, "Screw you! You're you're not really Italian. You're Irish. You're going to play a Jew in this film." And it's like, whatever. You know? I, um, I love the fact that as he's getting older, uh, he he definitely seems to be in on the joke about his he his his career. He's got to a comfortable point in his career where he can do what he wants. He can go on interviews. He always seems to be having a good time. You put him and Pacino in the same room on an interview, and Pacino looks like he wants to be anywhere else but there. And Robert De Niro is always just laughing and joking and having a great time. Every interview I've seen with him. It's just like he seems to have got to a point in his career where it's just like, I don't have anything left to prove. Has, I can really just be myself. Has Robert De Niro, with Martin Scorsese's help, become Sean Connery? Is he going to play a, a Russian boat captain next? Or <laughs> you know, get Daniel Radcliffe in as, as number one, you know. Yes, I am Russian. <laughs> you can tell that. Oh, I, I do like actors that have, that have got to the point in where they have enough money, they don't have to do movies they don't want to, they can pick whatever they want. Which is um, why De Niro did Hide and Seek. Well, you know, you don't always pick great films, let's put it that no. way. You know? To be For fair, I don't think De Niro's yeah. often picked great films in the last two decades. Well, it's you know? a lot of that's been tax, isn't it? Is it Maybe, or Tribeca um, stuff, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the reason we're talking about Martin Scorsese <laughs> is partially because we always talk about Martin Scorsese, hmm. but also because we are covering literary adaptations by Martin Scorsese from A to B. 
So <laughs> all um, the way, all from the way a to we, we get both of them in this one. Yeah, <laughs> and so thankfully the um, aviators, based on original research and bringing out the dead, is is an original script. But um, we do have the Age of Innocence and Boxcar Bertha. It, it is a div- quite a diverse twosome. <laughs> I have to say, you know, we normally go the three films and we get them as wide apart as possible while connecting them. But this is two films by the same director that. You can tell they're by the same director, but my God, the gulf between these two <laughs> is they're immense. They're both period pieces, let's be fair. They are both this, period this pieces, and, and I was going to um, bring that up, but actually, technically, I think all of his adaptations are period pieces, so it wasn't really that interesting. I will, I will admit connect. that when uh, this was mooted and you two went, oh, we could do The Age of Innocence, and they practically were high-fiving, and I was standing behind you going, a two-hour, 17-minute long <laughs> Period romantic drama. Why am I being punished? <laughs> Actually, I, it's because of Godfrey Ho. <laughs> I, I was kind of on your. I wasn't high fiving. I, I was kind of on your camp. But well, we'll, 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 we'll get discuss to that. How ideas can change. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I have to apologize for this or not. But I'm just going to go launch into this because I got really into. I'd never seen Boxcar Bertha. I had seen Age of Innocence, and. It's, And I realized, actually, that I hadn't seen Who's That Knocking at My Door, his first feature. So Boxcar Bertha is Scorsese's second feature. And it's kind of like, we sort of think of Scorsese's career starting with Mean Streets. That's kind of like, oh, that's where the whole, like, kind of his vibe comes from. Mm. And then there's these other things that are before that. And only the heads pay a lot of attention to that. Um, And I'd seen some of the short films. There's a beautiful disc of uh, Scorsese shorts that has some of his student films on it. But... um, and I, and I knew the basic, I mean, we've talked, um, when we did Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, um, way back near the start of this podcast, we talked about, you know, him being the young kid with asthma, watching movies mm. and all of that. But I was just kind of like, well, where really was he when Boxcar Bertha gets made? Because a lot of it doesn't really feel like, as, certainly as confident as the Scorsese we know today. It doesn't feel like he's come out, come out of the box fully formed, particularly in the first two thirds of the film. Um, but I did, but then I was like, well, I haven't seen who's that knocking at my door. So I'm like, is this a step back or a step forward or a step sideways? So I watched who's that knocking at my door, which is like sort of French, half French new wave, half like European stuff, but like kind of through a Scorsese thing. It's like a lot of Scorsese films, you know what he's referencing, but it feels like himself. This feels like the references and he hasn't learned how to synthesize it yet. And it's basically about Harvey Keitel's a guy who's in with some local hoodlums and trying to get together with this woman, but then he finds out the woman's not a virgin because she's been raped, and he gets really angry about it. And that's the oh. film. Right, and, okay. Yeah, So, and it's lacking on a lot of levels. But All I'm thinking um, here is that he cho- chose to do extra homework. <laughs> I, did, <laughs> I did a lot of homework. <laughs> and now I'm going to launch into my book report. So, so who's that knocking at my door? He got married in 65. He also had his first daughter in 65. I suspect those dates are probably very closely connected. <laughs> um, I, did, I didn't get the actual days. It's also the year he finishes film school, and he had already started working on the student film, which was called Bring on the Dancing girls he worked on extending into a feature and it was a disaster and then he basically added the whole subplot with harvey Keitel and this woman who's literally called the girl in the uh, credits uh and it was released uh to some film festivals in 1967 as a film called i call first which ebert saw it and um in 1967 he said 
I Call First is absolutely genuine, artistically satisfying, and technically comparable to the best films being made anywhere. I have no reservations in describing it as a great moment in American movies. Having said that, he still has to sell the damn thing, and he's not having much luck. Um, the next year, uh, distributor Joseph Brenner, who worked in Exploitation Pictures, was like, um, I can sell this if you film an extra sex scene. So he flies off to Amsterdam and shoots a five-minute scene that is lumped unceremoniously in the middle of the film <laughs> with, with Harvey Keitel betting a series of prostitutes to the door's the end, um, which now I wonder if Coppola got it from there. Wow. And literally, like, hides it in his um, clothes or something on the way home so it doesn't get confiscated as a sex <laughs> film. Um, and cuts it into the film, and it gets distribution under that name eventually. Um, Ebert sees it again in 69, you know, two years after it first played there, and um, calibrates his praise, but he still um, says something that we'll come back to later. It is possible that with more experience and maturity, Scorsese will direct more polished, finished films, but this work completed when he was 25 contains a frankness he may have diluted by then. So Scorsese's got this kind of vibe as like he's this up-and-coming guy, he's a bit artsy. In the New York scene where he's from, he's actually getting compared more to... Um, Kenneth Anger and Jonas Meckes and some of the more experimental people than he is actually getting compared to a Cassavetes or a De Palma, uh -huh. um, both of whom he knows from there and both of whom have made their way to L.A. Um, but meanwhile, Scorsese's trying to figure out what the hell he's going to do with his life. He's got a kid. He gets hired to shoot the Honeymoon Killers. And after a week, he gets fired from the Honeymoon Killers uh -huh. because he shoots everything in wide shots without any coverage. And it's a 240-page script, and they're like, if you do it like this, it's going to be four hours. Well, I didn't write a normal-sized script. is a whole separate issue. But um, that's a technique he used a lot in Who's That Knocking at My Door as well. So he gets knocked back. He goes back to his old NYU professor. He's like, can I get some work? He works, teaches at NYU. While he's there, they're making this documentary called Street Scenes that some of the students like Oliver Stone are working on. He also and, teaches Joe Dante, I believe. Oh, is Joe Dante point. one of the students as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a few that work on this documentary about I didn't know all the ones he taught. Um, and he even appears in a, a seat in that documentary with some other people, including Jay Cox, who at that point is the film critic for Time magazine. And we'll get to him much later. Um, he then goes to work as an editor on the documentary of Woodstock uh, alongside six other editors, one of whom is uh, Thelma Schumacher, who he meets for the first time, uh -huh. who goes on to edit pretty much basically everything Scorsese does for the rest of his no career. But not Boxcar Bertha. Um, and then because he's doing that, this guy in L.A. is like, come out here, I got this film called Medicine Ball Caravan, and it'll take two weeks, it's a music film. Gets out there, doesn't like L.A., and the film is a disaster, and he's there for nine months, trapped. Um, but, you know, at least he's hanging out with Coppola, getting to meet the, him, getting to meet George Lucas, De Palma's out there, Cassavetes is out there. And it's also where the business is. And so meanwhile, while he's slaving away in an edit suite, Roger Corman walks into a theater one day in 1970 and watches a film called J.R. Now, J.R. is yet another title for Who's That Knocking at My Door because oh my the L.A. God. distributor didn't like it. But he's like, hey, this looks interesting. So in 71, um, Corman meets Scorsese and offers him a sequel to Bloody Mama called Boxcar Bertha, um, which hasn't been written yet. Um... And he's like, okay. He's like, but it'll be ready in five or six months. He's like, whatever. Okay. Um, so he um, finishes Medicine Ball Caravan, and then Cassavetes hires him to be a sound editor on Minnie and Moskowitz, which is basically a favor. And it sounds like 
Scorsese really isn't doing a lot other than hanging out, sucking up a bit of extra budget and helping out with sound effects, which included punching Cassavetes in the stomach when they needed to do sound effects. But then one day the phone rings and Corman follows through. Um, And yeah, I'll do a quick background on Boxcar Bertha, uh, the story of that, and then we'll go into the company that he produced it for. Um, So Boxcar Bertha is based on a book called Sister of the Road, the Autobiography of Boxcar Bertha um, by Dr. Ben Reitman, who was this crazy anarchist doctor who is famous for like giving services to hobos, prostitutes, the poor, and other outcasts. He married this Russian woman who was an anarchist activist named Emma Goldman, um, who was super into agitating for workers' rights. And they found themselves in all sorts of scrapes. My favorite example from Wikipedia, um, which might help contextualize Boxcar Bertha in terms of your sort of fact fiction interpretation of it. The couple became involved in the San Diego free speech fight in 1912-13. Reitman was kidnapped by a mob, severely beaten, tarred and feathered, branded with IWW, which is the initials of the workers thing, and his rectum and testicles were abused. Um, so shit was rough. Yeah. Um, so, you know, because um, I, I got sort of 30 minutes into this and I'd seen this title about this, like, you know, woman who worked through workers' rights who's riding the rails, and I'm like, this can't be based on the book, which is a real story. And it is based on the book, which is not a real story. (laughs) So despite the name of it, um, it's widely believed to be fiction, at best a composite of a few characters, um, Mm -hmm. possibly even more made up, and and not coincidentally, she seems to have traveled pretty much the route that Reitman and Goldman did during their time. Um, But that character does commit crimes, does, you know, get involved in a lot of the same sort of things. I haven't read the book in enough, I haven't read the book, so, and I couldn't find a detailed enough synopsis to work out how much it uh, mirrors this, but it seems like it would have been a jumping off point, but also the jumping off point was really uh, two films, Bonnie and Clyde, which everybody wanted to rip off, and Bloody Mama, which AIP had successfully ripped off as a female gangster film, and they wanted a sequel. And Roger Corman's wife, Julie, um, went to the library while Roger was going off to the Philippines to prep something. I think technically they were still engaged at that point. And found Sister of the Road, got the rights. She claims to have got the rights from the real boxcar Bertha to sign it off, which then raises a whole other (laughs) set of questions. Believe anything a Corman Um, tells you with a very large grain of salt. Yeah. Especially Um, back in those days. Salt lick. Yeah. yeah. But so, and then another writer takes a pass at it, but then, you know, Scorsese gets the script. Corbin gives Scorsese the script to, um, or permission to rewrite the script. It has one creative requirement, which is nudity every 15 minutes. And I think this is probably a good time to talk about the company that our young, um, dreamy um, member of French New Wave and famous for worshipping European film was getting himself into. So take it away, Skeet. Yep. So I've um, been tasked with talking about American International Pictures, AIP, because... I don't know. Maybe I probably watched the most AIP movies out of all three of us. Probably those two combined because I've watched a lot of AIP movies. Uh, AIP, they were formed in 1954 as the American Releasing Corporation. They did actually want to be called American International Pictures, but the name was taken. So it was actually, they were ARC for the first few years until the name became available. 
Uh, and they were formed by the, the two gentlemen that we quite often refer to as the mark of quality when we see them mm-hmm. pop up in the credits on a Sunday cinema or a, a movie night. Uh, Mr. James H. Nicholson, Jim Nicholson, who was actually a sales manager uh, for Real Art Pictures at the time, and entertainment lawyer Samuel Ziarkov. <laughs> so, as I say, whenever we, see, whenever we see James H. Nicholson and Samuel Ziarkov turn up, you know you're going to be getting uh-huh. wait, what's on the tin, basically. Are you going to bring up the Arkoff formula? The Arkoff formula is, yes. It is quite, I've, I only just learned about this doing the research on it, but Samuel Ziarkov did have his Arkoff formula. A-R-K-O-F-F. The, the, the things you needed for a successful movie. Action, revolution, killing, oratory, fantasy, and fornication. <laughs> and that made them an awful lot of money. And I did find uh, a little hour-long documentary, probably from the mid-2000s, I think, from the AMC channel, um, American Movie Classics, I think it is, um, narrated by Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, talking about them, so I've, I've done quite a bit of research today, which I will probably forget half of. But I mean, it's that a fascinating story. Is, I mean, that that rivals E equals MC squared. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It is. It is basically a lot of money. But no, it's just an acronym because there's no <laughs> yes. equals in it. But funny, funny enough, you, you do did need lightning in a bottle to capture I that think formula. Equals for fornication, guys. probably. <laughs> <laughs> you needed the lightning in the bottle, and the two of them together probably could have done quite well. But the two of them, plus Mr. Roger Corman, mm-hmm. did fantastically well. Um, when they first met, uh, Samuel Ziarkov, uh, who was the entertainment lawyer, uh, was quite impressed by watching uh, Jim Nicholson get money out of his boss, because his boss at the time at Real Art Pictures was incredibly tight. And he watched um, James H. Nicholson negotiate a $500 payout and went, this guy knows his business. But when they started to, to work together, they had the two... The two different sides of them. James was the, the creative man. He would go to sleep and come up with, in the morning, half a dozen titles for movies that they could make mm-hmm. later years. They would, he would also, later on, have the movie posters created for movies that didn't exist to sell them. This was one of his parts of his formula, was to come up with the title, come up with the poster, send that poster out and go, would you like to show this in your cinema? And if enough people said yes... Find the money and then make the goddamn picture, which is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant business model if you've got the balls the size of yeah. you know, church bells because, uh, yeah, there's a lot of chutzpah going on there. Uh, meanwhile, Sam was more the, the business side of it. He got the money. But when they first got together to start their company, they had cash reserves of $3,000. And in 1956, uh, no, 1954, that was still not a lot of money to make a picture. Yeah. But fortunately, they they ran into a, a young film producer called Roger Corman, who had a film that he who had could make twenty three films for that money. Oh, yeah. it was as tight as hell and wouldn't spend any Roger money Corman. on anything. No, the the, the had, I mean, the, my favorite story about him was Jim Wynorski saying, "Roger, we need ten thousand dollars to put the score of this movie into stereo," and he just looked at him and went. Okay, well, we'll do it in mono. And he just walked out of the out of the <laughs> office because he went. And I I asked Roger Corman for money. Stupidest thing I ever did in <laughs> movies. But Roger had already made a couple of movies by that stage, and his movie that he actually had at the time, which he made for his uh, Paolo Alto Productions, was a road racing movie called The Fast and the Furious, mm-hmm. uh, which has a great poster, and I'm sure I would enjoy it much more than watching the actual Fast and the Furious because I've never enjoyed those. He actually had a few offers 
to distribute it, but they sweetened a deal for him. They said, if, okay, if you let us distribute this movie, we will finance your next two movies, or two, well, between two to three movies, depending on what source, the documentary said three, Wikipedia says two, mm-hmm. for $60,000, which they did not have. So once again, <laughs> lots of hot on these guys. Right. He readily agreed because $60,000, He this is a man that could make a movie in five days. Yeah. He said he averaged 10 days to make a movie, but he can make a movie in five days. He made Little Shop of Horrors in two because they had the sets for two more days. They weren't going to tear him down until Monday. He wrote a script on Friday, and they had it finished in the can by Sunday. So, I mean, Roger Corman, one of my heroes. man who made 200 movies in Hollywood and never lost a dime, to paraphrase them, the mm. title of his autobiography. Yeah. So they persuaded them that the best way to get this money was that he needed to lend them the print of the film so that they could show it to cinemas. Roger took the gamble, he said. He said it sounded like a, a plan. He gave it to them. They sold, managed to sell the Fast and Furious. They went into partnership because there was some money to be made, and they were underway. And once again, this was where the titles came out because the next uh, film they made was a western, Five Guns West. They stopped making westerns pretty quickly because they discovered you needed too much money to compete yeah. with mm-hmm. the studios. And at this time, the studio system was dying. It was crumbling, and this little little box in the corner of people's room was absolutely wrecking the movie industry tv was causing they said in and between in about two or three years in the 60s twenty one thousand theaters in america seven thousand of them closed wow because people were staying home to watch tv so they needed something that was going to be a hook to get them in there and this is when so once again where james nicholson's ideas for movie titles came up when he woke up and came in one time it said the beast with a million eyes they came up the poster they made they sold that that was a great idea I've seen the movie there is no beast in it because <laughs> the beast with a million eyes is invisible very very budget <laughs> but it can see through the eyes of any animal around so therefore they technically weren't lying mm. and Cormac could knock that one out in no time at all so they got underway these titles just started to, to pop out of the creative team and then they looked around and they started to see what was their market what was their target market and how could they sell these films because they were making B films they were making little films and if you did a B film in a drive-in the A film got a percentage of the tickets the B film you got a flat fee uh-huh. and they went well we can't sell a ticket for our films people aren't going to spend a full price ticket on our little films but what if we make two films and put them on the same double bill and they began to sell them as drive-in double bills and that's when they found the target market because who was going to the drive-thrus in the 1950s? Young and teenagers. Uh-huh. And at the time, probably two percent of major studio productions were aimed at teens. It was children's films, and then it was adult films. And if they made a teen film, it was basically just a doled-up children's film. Right. And as he said, kids, you know, 18, 19-year-old kids didn't want to see Lassie or Rin Tin Tin. They wanted to see teenagers on screen. This was the real. The rock and roll revolution was beginning, right. and if you this rebel with a cause was what was kind of just around, was around about that in mid fifties. I don't know the exact yeah. date of that one, but the wild that, one, yeah. And as if you look at their titles from the uh, from the mid nineteen fifties, nineteen fifty six, you see, get things like it conquer the world, great, you know, a little a great title there. But then suddenly you get things like rock or night. Uh, you get uh, the uh, where's my list of them? Girls in prison, hot rod girl. Uh, runaway daughters because 
the teenagers, it wasn't just a one thing. You could do juvenile delinquent films. You could do rock and roll movies, hot rod movies. And One of my daughters uh, was in the nineties. There was a series of remakes on Showtime. I yeah, think it was, and they... Joe Dante did the Runaway Daughters. Oh, cool! Like, yeah. like they just did a bunch of Corman remakes. They, they, specifically. Yeah, the weird uh, thing is, they took they the titles, did, and um, some of them did, weren't unrelated entirely. Like, How to Make a Monster was, was set in the Robert future. Robert Rodriguez did. Right. Uh, it was. Did did one of them as well? Some I think were, some of them were few, very odd. A few. So, yeah. Is that Road Racers or something? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There was there was some odd ones, but. Rock musicals, Shake, Rattle and Roll, which is, I mean, a real obvious rip-off of, of what they're aiming for. But yeah, yeah. Mm. once again, teenagers came to see it. And if teenagers weren't interested in the movies, they were interested in the teenager they were in the car with. Because right. as Mr. Arkoff said in the documentary I watched this morning, those, they were licensed passion pits, basically. Yeah. Actually, no, John, Joe Dante said that. He was talking, he, he was on there as well. He was saying they were basically a license to make out. Because if you didn't care about the movie, you normally had a date, you did what teenagers did. And you could get these people, get the teenagers in, and that money fell out of their pocket. And there's a, a beautiful little shot of one of um, Samuel Ziarkov's letters to a distributor saying, I remember the quote quite clearly, I believe, uh, horror begins at midnight, but the dollars will fall out of their pockets until the dawn. So <laughs> wow. he knew his market. Then they got near the end of the 60s, and things started to get a little wobbly because the studios began making B-films. They right. could see the dollars right. there as well. So... They began making these low-budget sci-fis, low-budget horrors, teen films coming out of the studios. Mm. And things started to get wobbly. So they shut down a lot of their production in the end of the 1950s, early 1960s, and started to look a little further afield. And they, what they ended up doing was a little trip to Rome. And they came back after mm. spending $20,000 with two Sword and Sandals movies, uh, which... Hercules in the Haunted World? Uh, it was no? Goliath and the Barbarians and Sheba and the Gladiators. And they were mainly doing this for the profits from I Was a Teenage Werewolf because that went bonkers yeah, a few years before. That Hercules Haunted World, I think, is in about 67, Later. 68. Okay, yeah. It's Mario Bava. Yeah, but these ones really started off. The I knew that they had, they had bought some Mario Bava films. Yeah, they, they distributed Black Sunday. That's so, right. Yeah, Black mm. Sunday in 1960. Yeah, but they were they were spending a lot of the money that they had made from things like I Was a Teenage Werewolf. And when that one came out, it was $375,000 budget and made $2 million in two weeks. Right, wow. And then before the end of the year, they had I Was a Teenage Frankenstein out because literally they said the studio, the, the, the theatres were calling up saying, what else have you got? So they made quite a bit of money, but near the end of the 50s, as the big studio started to come in, they could have gone out of business right then and there. Right. So they brought over the teenage Michael Landon, with, with, uh, starring a werewolf. Yeah, but that, or, that could be fun. Strike that, reverse it. <laughs> the um, when they brought over the Italian movies, they redubbed them, of course. And as I said, it was quite easy to redub them and change the plots because you were just, you know, you were putting words in their mouth, kind of. And they yeah. did show some examples where some of that dubbing was not great. But once again, if you're in in a steamy backseat and a drive-through, who really cares? Yeah. But those actually started to take up, and they they were actually out selling some of the big studio releases of that Christmas. So that's the big story for me about AIP is they never sat and went, this is what we do, we make these movies. They followed the trends, and they were really good at picking the trends. A few years later, 1963, what becomes uh, popular on the radio? The Beach Boys. What becomes popular as a destination? California. What becomes massive? Beach Party. And we talked about that in our very first episode. Yes, we did. Well, yeah. Yes, we did. Beach Party. They made Beach Party. 
they revived, you know, pulled back some people through who hadn't had a career for years. Buster Keaton's in some of those movies. Then, oh, Timothy Carey was in the one we watched. Yeah, yeah. 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 And of course, um, according to this documentary, uh, when they actually cast Annette Fonicello and announced that she was going to be in Beach Party, Samuel Z. Arkoff got a phone call from Walt Disney outraged at what, quote, what are you doing with my little girl? And he said, <laughs> she's 19, she's not a little girl anymore. And he never cast her again. Walt Disney never used the Netflix and Jello after that. Wow. And they knocked out movie after movie. They made a ton of money on that. That starts to die away. What else is big? Counterculture. The biker flicks. Right. And mm-hmm. their biggest release, The Wild Angels, made them bank. It just made a ton of money. And led to a series of biker flicks that ran through to the late 1970s. They were still making biker flicks. None of which would have made it into New Zealand because, as we discussed in our very first episode, our censor yeah. hated biker flick movies and banned them outright. Mm. So, biker flicks comes along. What else is there? Oh, here comes Roger Corman back again. He didn't like the biker flicks, he hated the biker flicks. But the psychedelic drug trip films, that was his jam in 1968. So the so trip. Was the trip. Psych out. Gas, which I love gas, and that's on my list to read. Oh, really? Okay, I've never that's seen sorry, it. The, the movie. That's gas. <laughs> or it became necessary to destroy the world in order to save it. I haven't seen it in years. I've been meaning to see it again. I've got a copy I'm going to rewatch. Uh, so, Wild in the Streets, which is another one I've been meaning to play at BFS one of these years. Oh, yeah. They released all of those ones, and everything was going pretty swimmingly. As far as money went, but unfortunately, during the beach party years, um, James Nicholson divorced his wife and married one of the young starlets from the beach party movies. And the divorce meant that he had to give, under California law, half of his shares to his ex-wife. So he was no longer a 50-50 partner. Uh And things got a little tense. There's a little clip in the documentary, and they're talking about one of the movies coming up and they you can see they both have a massive disagreement about what's going on. It's on Wild in the Streets. Right. About whether it's a a, a broad parody or a, a shape of things to come type movie. And you can feel the tension in the room between them and they've been partners for years. And so eventually the partnership did break up. And as we mentioned only a few episodes ago, James Nicholson headed to England and made two films uh, with the Academy Pictures Corporation. He made Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and in England he made The Legend of Hell House. That That's right. Well, we mentioned that only a few episodes yeah, yes. ago. That was his last film. He did, he did have a six-picture deal, but unfortunately he developed a brain tumour and died uh, after only making those two films. Mind you, Hell House. Wow. Hell House. I mean, it's a way to go out, definitely. Mm. Um, Arkoff um, continued on alone, so Sam Arkoff continued making movies. Was Roger Corman still a part of them at this stage? Or was uh, he, he was do- probably heading towards... I mean, by the 80s, he was in New World. He had his own production company. So he, did the... the, uh, the, the so poem? he was never he was never one of the co-owners. He was, of he was never co-owner. So he he was just a was a producer, producer who would make lots of... Just occasionally. Yeah. So yeah. he yeah. was doing the Poe films on his, uh, for yeah, his he own did the Poe. He did, no, he did those with AIP, all the, the Edgar Allan Poe ones. How could you not Asking the Red Death and Fall of House. Oh, there's, sure. a, there's like... A, <laughs> 15 pages of Wikipedia here that I'm skipping through because, you know... Mind you, you know. The, um, <laughs> I, I tried to... I went and looked at, like, what, what was coming out the same year as Boxcar Bertha, and it was, like, 27th on the release yeah. list, and it was, like, August or something, I there forget. Is, there is... I mean, they, they made... I think in 1965, they made 50 films. So they yeah. made a wow. lot of films. They made them cheap, they made them fast, but they made money. But those films did do the really films, well yeah. for them, though. They made yeah, a lot definitely. of money yeah. out of those. And they, gave, they started off the career of Jack Nicholson. Now, they started off the career of so many people. They changed the career of Vincent Price, of course. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But then in the 70s, 
attitude changed again. What suddenly? What would you expect a, a middle-aged white man to career start creating? Black exploitation films and yeah. the AOP black exploitation films are some of my all-time favorites. And of course, discovered Pam Greer and put mm-hmm. her and made her. So, which one are the major AIP titles out of the black exploitation? Is that uh, Coffee and Foxy Coffee, Brown? Foxy Brown. Uh, da, 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 there is. Truck Turner one. Blackula. Truck Turner? I don't know if Truck Turner is. Blackula it is. And Blackula, both the Blackula films. So, they did a ton of They're so good. Have you seen them both? No. Uh, Scream, Blackula, yeah. Scream is is even it, it, that's the one that's got Pam Greer in it, and yeah, it's okay. even better than the first. Yeah, Black Mama, White Mama, one of these. There is a ton. I mean, they did a lot of the woman in prison films, which mm-hmm. some yeah. of them, you know, with with today's attitudes, probably not going to be quite. And then everybody's was, was AIP it. doing this like the Jonathan Demme films? Was he doing with Corbin uh, for yeah, AIP? So like KHT and all that. Ooh, KHT well, definitely. I think KHT was one. Yeah, Black Mama. What's Black the, Mama? White Mama was one of his. I, the I, Big Bird Cage. Big Bird Cage was an AIP. There is. I mean, I can't name all of them because if I could scroll through for days on that list. And you'll find if you if you name one, there's a fifty fifty chance it was an AIP. Near the end of their run, though, they started getting into more mainstream films. Um, Amityville Horror was one of theirs. Love at oh. First Bite, Meteor, Forced Ten from Navarone, uh, The Island Doctor Moreau, Chomps was one of theirs. Chomps. And by the that Island Doctor Moreau, that's the Burt Lancaster Michael yeah, York yeah. one. Yeah. And their final film that they actually bought because they were still buying films and distributing them at the time was a film they had to dub into English, uh, a little film called Mad Max. They right. had to dub into American. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. That was their final film. Same ah. with the, as the Arkov said, as he got to the end of it, they were producing these bigger films, which had bigger budgets, were much more mainstream, but he just wasn't having as much fun. So he so he decided to do the sensible thing. He sold out for $4 million, and they merged with Filmways. Yeah. Uh, and... They basically that was pretty much the end of that one. Uh, I think they we, yeah. they did relaunch in twenty twenty as a streaming uh, producer, but were, okay. for MGM, but um, pretty much were immediately absorbed in the half dozen mergers. I don't even know where they are at the moment. So um, I think they're under a, a new parent company with I think they've been picked up by Amazon of all people these days. Oh my so God. Quite possible. So if we just roll that back to nineteen seventy one when all this is happening, we've got Nicholson gone. But we've got um, Arkoff running things, and we've got Corman saying, here you go, you're going to be part of this giant machine that's guaranteed to get your film seen at least for five minutes while people are making out in a car <laughs> across the country um, in what is not necessarily the most reputable of circumstances, but is also a make-or-break thing for whether Martin Scorsese can be a successful movie director of Hollywood entertainment films as opposed to strange art films mm. and he's come off the back of having been fired off honeymoon killers and so he immediately gets to work and makes 500 storyboards and in storyboards the entire movie and roger corman comes in at one point and is like what are you doing and looks at a couple and just leaves them to it and um and he has 24 days to make boxcar bertha um so I should note at this point, actually, uh, Boxcar Bertha, uh, we've basically described what the plot is about a woman who is a young up and rising labor leader, played by Barbara Hershey. Um, now, David Carradine is uh, the union organizer and Bertha's lover, Big Bill Shelley, and some of the rewrites um, brought him more to the front, but there was also a limit to that because everyone knew that what the 
people upstairs really wanted was a female gangster film. So even though one of the writers was really into Bill Shelley's character, but you do see that imbalance in the film is that there's there are times where Bertha does deal, take the back seat. There's not a great deal of focus on her being the labor leader, though, is there? It's more, not as much. It's that she's traveling with his them. Coattails. Yeah, yeah and, and that's, that's probably where the original source material's been right. compromised a bit as she's at those things, but it's not as uh, forward. Now, I hadn't realized this, that Carradine and Hershey were lovers in real life. Um, and in fact, at the time it came out, it was all quite notorious because they'd met on the set of Heaven with a Gun. And by the time they co-starred in Boxcar Bertha, um, Hershey publicly announced that they'd filmed the movie's sex scene without having to fake anything. Yeah. Which ev- everybody believed because they'd already turned up nude together in Playboy. Um, and they'd had their child out of wedlock named Free, who she revealed oh, wow. they had planned to eat the afterbirth. Quote, it's very nutritious, but buried instead beneath an apricot free. free apricot tree so that he can eat the fruit nurtured by our own bodies. Um, so... Yeah, there's also the bit where she changed her name to uh, Seagull for a few years after Seagull was accidentally killed on a set that she was working on. Oh my so all Lord. sorts of stuff about Barbara Hershey's young career. Like She was kind of the poster child for weird hippie shit in the late 60s, <laughs> early 70s. Um, and so... Great. So they, they show up along with, of course, Barry Primus, Victor Argo, Bernie Casey, and David's father, John Carradine, uh-huh. as the big boss of the railroad. Um... So shooting in Arkansas, as I said, 24 days. And Scorsese's making his days. He's succeeding with things. It's going well. So Corman shows up one day and says, you know, Bonnie and Clyde has a car chase scene, so we need a car chase soon. And so you need to add that to the shoot. And Scorsese says to Corman, great, so can you give me an extra day? And we can all guess what Corbin said to that. <laughs> <laughs> and so Boxcar Bertha was shot in 24 days with yep. a car chase. If you wanted to make a movie for Corman, yes, you had to bring it on on time and on budget, but preferably shorter than the time very allowed and way the fuck under budget. Yeah. And he would give you the freedom to make a movie. Yeah. I mean, that's where a lot of these guys got a career. But if you went over budget or asked for more money, go, oh, that's that's that. No. Well, this, I mean, ultimately, I don't know exactly where this came in relative to budget, but it was the only movie he made for Corman, I think, Mm. um, certainly at that time. And I don't think the reasons for that had anything to do with his performance. Um, So at the end of this, he's made Boxcar Birth, and he takes it to his friend John Cassavetes. Yes, and yes, and John Cassavetes said, Marty, you've just spent a year of your life making a piece of shit. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and then went on to say, it's a good picture, but you're better than the people who make this kind of movie. Don't get hooked in the exploitation market. Just try and do something different. Um, Arkoff, for his part, was slightly more complimentary. Um, <laughs> there's a screening. At, they have a screening at Pantages at a preview screening. And Scorsese goes there with the producer he's intending to work with. Um, Arkoff's there. Uh, the crowd really gets into applause at the end. And um, Arkoff comes up to him and says... I gotta tell you, it's almost good. It's the best preview we've had since the Wild Angels. To which Scorsese says, that's pretty good. And Arkoff says, don't get excited. It's almost good. <laughs> wow. So who's right, Cassavetes or Arkoff? Darren, you start. Oh, I liked it. It's, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, you can tell it's, it's someone starting out. Yeah. But it, it's, I mean, not having seen his first one... Um, I think it's. I think the performances are really good. The um, the three leads are great. You've um, 
You've got uh, John Carradine. Does he have any scenes with his son? Or there's, yeah, there's yeah, one, there's, there's on the on the there's train. There's one on the, the train. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there is. But it, well, also when they hold him up at the house. Oh, that's yeah. Okay, so yeah, there are a few. Yeah. Uh, uh, because I'm very observant and I can <laughs> see these yeah. things. Um, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. It was um, it was a, a lot more brutal than I was expecting, and uh, I knew where it was going to go at the end. And we should, I I did want to bring up that, um, and we're just going to go into spoilers territory now. Yes, there's a crucifixion scene near the end, and I'd already um, when I went to a Scorsese exhibition in Melbourne at Acme a few years back. They had the Boxcar Bertha crucifixion and the Last Temptation for Christ crucifixion playing on monitors next to each oh, other wow. because they're shot for shot. Right. And Whoa. so, um, and despite Scorsese's famous Catholicism, which is a huge element in Who's That Knocking Out My Door, that was not uh, an invention of his. That was part, part of the original script. Oh, but wow. um, he was just so excited that he was able to shoot that, obviously. But then when he went to do Last Temptation, he's like, I'm just... Gonna shoot it the same way as a tribute to that. There's there's some really great elements. I mean, Bernie Casey is Bernie Casey's the standout is for me. I reckon. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, as I, I mentioned to you guys earlier, I, I found a um, uh, I I just put in uh, behind the scenes of Boxcar Bertha, and it brought up a um, an old article of the uh, of the um, the town that actually hosted them, well, where the film was shot, and where yeah. they used the trains. And Which you can it, read all about on the Wikipedia for Boxcar Bertha. Because yes. they go into extreme detail because some train nerd got his uh, Wikipedia it. editor hat on. And it shows that the um, the original person cast in, in the Bernie Casey role was Lewis Gossett Jr. Right. Or yeah. Lewis Gossett, as he was known at the time. Um, so it's actually quite an interesting article. But, yeah, there's a lot of really good elements. Um, I, I quite enjoyed the um, the the... Uh, the minions of the bad guy, the Vic- Victor Argo oh, is yeah. one of them, and there's just they do a lot with very little. Mm. They just have the the matching hats and the. Uh, um, they look like the is it Tintin those two characters? Oh, the Thompson and Thompson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they're sort of determined hard bastards, and they don't always achieve. Unfortunately, they do achieve at the end of the film. Yeah, well, they do achieve in the prison scene as well. Oh, in the prison scene where they... Oh, that's... Yeah, there's some really grim, um, grim, nasty stuff. But it's... the Barbara Hershey is winning enough that she sort of drags you through it a lot, I think. Uh, I I enjoyed following her even more than I did the David Carradine. And Barry Primus was really quite good too. It's... uh, yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, it's it's not what I was expecting for an AOIP because it is a serious straight drama for yeah, most yeah. of it. And if you know, oh, if you yeah. look at what AIP was releasing at the time on either side of it, I mean, this came out on June fourteenth, nineteen seventy two, and the month before they released the, the Bloody Judge, and the month before that, the Blood from the, the Mummy's Tomb, and afterwards, the next movie directly after Box Boxcar Bertha was The Thing with Two Heads. Right. It falls for me right outside what I expect yeah, from AIP. Yeah, I was expecting something a little bit more junky. Yeah. Now, have you guys seen Bloody Mama? Because I have not. I have seen Bloody Mama, yeah. yeah I've seen and Bloody how Mama does this compare time. to that? It's Bloody Mama is a lot more... I probably, in my head, I remember talking about Boxcar Bertha, I think, and we mentioned it in passing on a podcast. I mean, oh, that's a fun one. And it's, I think in my head I had those two 
confused. There's because no way it's a sequel. No, though. Bloody Mama is, no. is just a kind real, of the same genre is a, loosely. Yeah. Is a lot more fun. It's definitely yeah. in that just a kind of a a, a good drive-in movie yeah, action. Yeah. It's it's bloody. It's got nudity. It's it's the, it follows the formula perfectly, yeah. but it's got a much lighter tone, I think. Whereas this one is definitely it's not it's not dank and depressing it's just it is mm. seriously you're in the in the drama mode yeah well i mean i was expecting when they when they said we're taking on the railroad i thought oh great we're going to see these fun scenes of them taking on the uh, railroad and destroying them and but no we have lovely scenes of victor argo and the other guy blowing away prisoners and well we do have like the the scene where they there's there's like the bit where bernie casey's on the train and he's holding up the um true uh all the passengers as a waiter and then obviously later when they go to their house and i do think there is a lot of lightness yeah to the film between that and i as you suggest a lot of that's barbara hershey's Mm. performance and her energy in that is this sort of kind of almost flower child energy transplanted into the 1920s. Well, she, I mean, she does have sex with Barry Primus as well, doesn't she? Or um, or is it only, because it feels like at one point she comes on to him and then when they find David Carradine, she walks straight over to David Carradine and she's... Hurt. I don't think they've had sex. I think it's just like they've been... Just implied together. of... Yeah. yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe canoodling. Yeah. I was going to say, Barry Primus's character made an exit I did not see coming. Gosh, no. No. It was, he was in the movie and I was like, well, also he's going to be here at the end of the film. I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so it does, it really does throw some some hard turns at you. And this, and I've got to say, from from the opening scenes, it's very much a Scorsese movie. It's a lot more art that has crept into this AIP movie than would make any other one at the same time. I mean, as I say, mm. but this was within two years of, of things like Coffee and Foxy mm. Brown coming out, yeah. which were, you know, hard-edged, gritty, but, you know, great film, films to watch, but they were, you couldn't call them high art. Yeah. And the, the, some of the editing in this one, especially, mm. I don't know, you're a, you know, Doug being an editor is yeah. probably all over this more than I am, but just some of the, the shots, things like little, little micro cuts where he's, yeah. in, the, in the start of the movie, just really brief little cuts, came back in our second movie made oh very much made decades later but he hadn't he hadn't found the sort of flowing camera thing yeah and that's and that's his music i i I feel like his the musicality of movement in scorsese films which is something i really love Mm. i i found that first scene just really like it's like, oh, the camera just never feels like it's in the right place and quite doing things. And there's nice moments, like when you yeah. get a little reflection of her in the car thing. But, um, and I think, I think it's really interesting, like, what expectations you bring in and what you're comparing it to. Are you comparing it, it to yeah. others, you know, Scorsese's later films? Are you comparing it to AIP films? Yeah. The film I kept c- comparing it to, actually, was a film that came out a year later about... Um, a young girl and a guy on the lamb committing crimes, which is Badlands. Right. Yep. And admittedly a more expensive film, but I, th- you know, a, a I mean, technically Malick's Malick's are a very, film. very arty. I mean, even then he had just a way of yeah. painting a picture with every frame. But also in a lot of ways, Badlands is, I, I feel like, almost as successful as mainstream entertainment. Um, and I, mm. think, I think can function for a mass audience. Sure. Probably better than Boxcar Bertha. Certainly yeah. survived better mm-hmm. um, in that. And obviously those directors went in very different directions, but kind of at that point where they were in history, they could have gone 
in the opposite direction. And I mean, you know, Malik worked on some pretty, like, straight up exploitation stuff in various supporting roles near the start of his <laughs> career. Um, for me, the point where I started really feeling like Scorsese deep in the bones of it was that near the end scene at the train and yeah. that and that felt like you know that would have been the one that he put his energy of his storyboards into and it and it is it is it's it's a watchable moderately interesting yeah drama with a couple interesting explosions of paroxysm and boobs every 15 yeah minutes. it does yeah it does i think point. it actually oddly enough it suffers from the aip formula because yeah if you didn't have to put in boobs every 15 minutes if you didn't have to have a car chase if you didn't have to have violence yeah to punctuate it and he made a straight drama it would probably have held up better i that feels at times a little disjointed for me I think that's the thing. It's it's an in-between thing, yeah. A seventy, an early seventies IRP to be entertaining trash quite often, yeah. And And you you don't have to challenge yourself. And this is trying to make me do both, which has got a real disconnect of what I. And it does that switcheroo where she um, she's been in a a, is it asylum or some sort of halfway house type? Yeah. Oh, more yeah, the 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 whorehouse, the The brothel. brothel. Let's 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 put it. Well, she she escaped from it, and Yeah. yeah, but there was this. Pre, it's someone who came in and asked her a bunch of questions, and uh, but she escapes from it and she finds him and she comes back and it's like they're they're going to be happy they're going to yeah. be together, and then the real Scorsese of it all kicks in yeah, where no yeah. they're not yeah. going to be yeah. happy. Oh, Incidentally, yeah. everyone catch Scorsese's cameo at the brothel. Yes. No. Here's one of the customers. Oh, yeah. oh well, there you go. Oh, one, here's a nice, lovely customer. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's excellent. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and and then yeah, then we have the dark as balls ending. It's I mean she yeah, it's... she gets to live. Bernie Casey gets to live, but yeah, but yeah. not David Carradine. It's uh, and it's yeah that that's those images they kind of stick with you too. Yeah, and I I, I, yeah. I I had to split this movie into two because as I mentioned in our last podcast, I'd you know, been sick at the start of the year and I was still yeah. I was trying to watch the where I got through 20 minutes and had to go take a nap because I couldn't focus on the movie and had to restart. But I ended up watching it over two days, splitting into two halves just so mm-hmm. I could give my brain a rest. So the sure. second half I'm watching uh, with my wife. Uh, and <laughs> that scene, yeah, that's that's probably not the one kind of... It's not a date movie kind of scene. <laughs> if we were at the drive-in at that point, I think we would have put the speaker back on the pole at that stage and just... Yeah, enough said. I mean, the two also <laughs> the two Hessable villains got theirs, and that was a little mm. bit of catharsis,m but yeah. not a lot. And you also have to see this through a post Easy Rider lens as well, right? Mm. Whereas there's kind of, and it, also a post Bernie Bonnie and Clyde lens, you know. Is mm. I mean, this is, uh, and I mean, as much as watching Dial History, which I mentioned in the last mm. podcast, and just thinking of like the kind of violence and upheaval and stuff that was going through, there's a lot about a sort of downer ending yeah. about people who, yes, are criminals and doing all this stuff, but are also taking on, you know, the exploitive capitalist lackey dogs and and robber barons and all this kind of stuff. And for their struggles and joy and for their kind of, you know, quite being clearly like occupying this dual role of playing people in the 20s, almost as people who are hippies and, you know, being nailed to the cross for their sins. Mm. Um, you know, it reads probably in a way that really resonated at 
at that time to some degree. Although, having said that, it certainly wasn't um, overwhelmingly received. There was sort of sort of a mixed bag of reviews. Mm. So we haven't described how it all looks. It's an incredibly scummy look at the sort of... Yeah, well, I mean, you're on a corn budget. It's not going to look glossy. No, but, no, no, but, but, it, but what but I mean it, it is the, the, the time and scummy. place yeah. is... Uh, it, feel, it feels Great Depression-y. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, really... Yeah. There's nothing... There's nothing pleasing to the eye. It's uh, it's just a... a Stop pun. being mean about Barbara Hershey. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't be mean about Barbara Hershey. I mean, the, the, the nicest thing about is the um, the house that they break into is that... Yeah. And the, um, and the train carriage yeah. that uh, John Carradine occupies. But everything else is as low rent as it possibly can. Well, those so, abandoned houses with, yeah. like, you know, little, like, sheets on the mm. wooden floors and stuff. And um, I did have questions about their quality of uh, investment advice on the amounts of money that they seem to be stealing that should have gone farther than <laughs> they did, but... I, I watched this on Tubi as well, and, and I've got to say, not every print on Tubi is perfect, so I probably got an even slightly scummier-looking version of it as right. well, but um, I'm not going to say a bad thing about Tubi, because, yeah, <laughs> it's my favourite. No, because we're, we're going for some uh, yeah, we, sponsor money. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, Tubi, Tubi. Tubi, give us some money. Oh, wait, hang on, you're free. Yeah, well, give us some Give we'll us 10% of your uh, subscription fees. <laughs> Would it be a, um, a movie based on a true story or based on a book? I wasn't expecting it to end the way it was, because when you were telling the story of Boxcar Bertha, ending it on the death of the other character yeah. doesn't seem like an urn, like the right place to end. And it. I think I think that's a that is sort of the mess of the creative process of making it is, and I've forgotten the name of the writer, but you know, it's Julie Corman finding the source material and passing it mm. to a writer. And at some point, they actually were talking. He's like, I don't want to make Boxcar Bertha. I want to make Big Bill Shelley. And right. it was like, well, you can't make Big Bill Shelley because you've been hired to make Boxcar Bertha and these studios expecting Boxcar Bertha. But within that... They made Box- they put yeah, Big they Bill Shelley. You know? and, and, and you definitely, I mean, as you alluded to before, you definitely get the sense at times that the title character is a passenger in her own movie. Mm. Um <laughs> I just think that Bertha is such a shameful name because it's, it just gives you such... Um, was it the Pee Wee Herman bus driver? Oh, that's, yes. Yeah, that's, that's my <laughs> only association yes. with Bertha. And so I've, I, I've never like even like really thought of what the character Boxcar Bertha would look like over the years, but I kind of expected like a 55-year-old Harridan. But, uh, but once again, this is, this yeah. is a, a classic AIP one because I'm pretty sure they did Dixie Dynamite as well about the same time. So a lot right. of movies like that, you, once again, you had to hook people in there and box Scar Bertha. You know, it rolls off the tongue nice and easily. There. True. I, I, I did like the the ending kind of reminds me of the ending of Vanishing Point, one of my favourite movies from oh, the yeah. same year, that, that downbeat ending. But yeah. it's a downbeat ending which still leaves that main character in Vanishing Point. It leaves you in this kind in, of, did in, this really happen? And then, yeah. In Boxcar Bertha, it leaves you going, now what is going to happen to this character? Yeah, well, that so, was the thing. I was left thinking, well, what about her? What about her now? <laughs> what, what happens mm. now? And, read and read that, the Bantam book. And that could have been interesting <laughs> to have yeah. found that out. Yeah. But I, I mean, I suppose, let's sum it up. Let's actually, it's a, it's a good film. I, it's, I don't, it's not a, I don't think there's anything I can point out that's really bad about it. It's a, it's a good film. It's you can see the potential that Scorsese had as an artist, as a as a director. 
Yeah, you you could feel someone getting their feet underneath them and yeah. getting their their sense of what their their vision is and wanting to break free from the restrictions that have been put on them. And as you say, once he yeah. jumped to things once like he listened to John Cassavetes, John Cassavetes. Yeah. so John Cassavetes yeah, yeah. was right. Yeah, Th- thanks. And to yes, he probably could have. Because his next film was Mean Streets. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if he'd so stuck yeah. with I mean, AIP, he probably mean, we probably wouldn't talk yeah. about him the way we do now. And he, had we done a if had the the podcast been comparing this to Mean Streets, I mean, there's the the leap from one to the other is yeah exponential. I feel it's similar for me from um, Killer's Kiss to the Killing, um, yeah. You know, but I I like this film much better than Killer's Kiss, and I like both of Killer's Kiss has some Kubrick. good mannequin type stuff. Yeah, there's going there's on. a couple there's some nice interesting shots. Ideas. There's some interesting photography, but not much else. Yeah. And Fear and Desire, which is Kubrick's actual first film, is just bloody terrible. And no, like, I haven't. I haven't might watch Killer's Kiss once more in my life. I will never watch Fear and Desire again. <laughs> um, I could watch either of Scorsese's first two films somewhere down the line. <laughs> um, I wouldn't make a point of it, but. I think these are. Pro- it's probably one of his worst films, but I don't think he's made a bad film. No, and there, I agree. there is so, so for somebody with that of what I've seen. big of a track record. That's a pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, I'm thing not. A, I'm say. not a director completist by any way, shape, or form. I'm not going to watch all 200 Godfrey Ho movies, no matter how much I like them, because once you've seen 50, Two, uh, sorry, once, so 200, 200. Yeah, I mean, once you've but, seen but the that's, first that's, fifty, you've, you've probably well, seen them. Fifty is two hundred. Surely, <laughs> you can just move. About. You probably have seen them just in different orders. But right? when I when Godfrey I Ho, at, just for for listener yeah. who doesn't know what the fuck we're talking about, <laughs> it should by now. Um, <laughs> yeah. It manages to get hold of three films and sort of all oh, which involve of, ninjas that often. No, no, no he, he makes he, the ninja movies he, and he crams them and into crams whatever the other, fuck he finds on the cutting room floor. Yes, yeah, so and it pushes them together in a unnatural way. And it's genius. It is genius. And we've seen far too many of these days. Yes, well, I've seen a lot more than you have because I stopped showing them to you. Oh, thank you. Yes, because you were were getting annoyed. But I've got to say, I'm not a a completionist by any way, shape, or form. Pretty much most of the Scorsese's I've seen I have really enjoyed. Possibly the only one that I first watched, when I watched Taxi Driver, I was not prepared, I think, for Taxi Driver, for how gritty, downbeat, and just... I mean, the movie should basically come with a scratch and sniff car that smells like 19 <laughs> because it's and I haven't mm. gone back to it I've got to admit and I probably should get back to it you know decades later because mm. when I first watched it I was just this is considered one of these classic movies and yeah. it, it was almost at times for me repellent but I have to go yeah. back and try I mean it time. is yeah well, it's yeah, great I, but yeah. I didn't have that I just have reaction. to be in the right fucking mood in 2023 might not be it <laughs> I, didn't, yeah. I didn't have that reaction with Taxi Driver which I found as a tonal masterpiece because there's so many different yeah. things going on Raging Bull is the one that I found deeply repellent and and it's because of the the character I just can't I don't want to go mm. on a journey with Jake LaMotta. I, I, I want him to die in a trash fire. <laughs> I just, I've, I find him so repellent that I, my first watching of that, I just couldn't get with the film. I, I, I loved the artistry of it. I loved the camera work. I loved all of that. But the actual storyline, mm. I was hard to get past what horrible people Joe Pesci and... Mm. And Robert De Niro were, and and normally I'm really good at moving past that stuff, but yeah, mm-hmm. I couldn't. I mean, it's probably why. How did you feel about Wolf of Wall Street? 
I loved it. <laughs> but I mean, that's how I felt about it the first time. Is I'm just like yeah. So, but I definitely want but, to go back. Yeah. To, but the to second Raging time I watched Wolf of Wall Street, I was just able to kind of yeah go with it. I and I, I, I find it's fascinating. I've how... had a copy of that for two years. I've never got around to it. And I think it's probably just the length. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's know. oh, it's so good. But uh, I mean, this. I think it's weird because I I like to think I have an open mind and I can just approach things. And sometimes you can do that. And other mm. times, there's just no way in God's green earth you can. You yeah, just, yeah. you have this th- this wall you come up against, and it's just because uh, well, I really wanted to like Raging Bull. I'd been looking forward to seeing it for years, mm. and having an excuse because it was homework uh, to see it <laughs> was perfect. And yet somehow I just, I just, I, I, I hated. Jake LaMotta and and Joe and Joe Pesci's character they were just there was no nice mm. side and the the stand up comedy was just yeah <laughs> beyond well you know that's but, that. but I will return yeah. to it yeah. the true king of comedy the true comedy but I mean it's probably <laughs> the reason that After Hours was our favorite movie because the char- it's the characters oh in yeah right. it. and it's the I well, follow those, those Griffin Dunn's Griffin Dunn's character anywhere yeah. he's so he's so likable. Mm. And and, but he's also very fallible, fallible, and and in a way that is, we can all understand because yeah. it feel uh, yeah. And I mean, that, for me, the a perfect double place. feature is After Hours and Miracle Mile. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, yeah. Those two together. It's maybe just, it, maybe put After Hours has a slightly more upbeat. Yeah, slightly upbeat. So, slightly. So, <laughs> but the, but I mean, for for you know, just for continuity, you do you would have to finish with. Miracle Mall because I there's know. no coming back from that. If you haven't seen Miracle Mall, see Miracle Mall. Yes. Yeah, it's funny because I don't think After Hours. I've only seen it once and I liked it fine, but it probably wouldn't make my Scorsese top ten. Right. But that also says more about Scorsese's top ten Absolutely. than it does. Yeah, there's a because, lot there. There's a well, lot I mean, stuff. he doesn't do a lot of straight comedies, and well, and, and even calling After Hours a straight comedy is mm. a stretch. But that and King of Comedy. I mean, King of Comedy, I think, is just a masterwork. The uh, and Jerry, I don't think Jerry Lewis has ever been better, and he plays the straight man. Yeah. But he's hilarious as the straight man. It's like a a Bud Abbott level of being the straight guy, mm. and he's one of the only straight people. Straight people. That's wrong. <laughs> straight guy uh, in a com- uh, comedy type approach that can make me laugh it's it's just amazing we could probably talk about all of his films but, but we, we should, should. Yes, we talk should. about the one that we showed up let's, here to let's talk. be disciplined watch. for a change let's, let's go back to, to movie a so let's fast forward to the early 90s um before i do so i should mention that um martin scorsese's film is the third adaptation of the age of innocence uh there's a 1924 silent film directed by wesley ruggles which has no reviews and one rating on Letterboxd. Um, and I don't know if somebody rated it thinking they were rating the wrong, the wrong film. <laughs> what about IMDb? Um, I didn't look. And a 1934 version by Philip Moeller starring Irene Dunn, which has pretty small number of reviews as well. So even though it's a, considered a classic, um, it was never uh, revisited after that point uh, until Scorsese's version. So, And the reason it was revisited is because a fellow named Jay Cox who you may remember from a half hour ago, oh, wow. uh, had gone from being the critic at Time Magazine, who talked with him during uh, Street Scenes, to 
becoming one of Scorsese's most trusted friends. They'd show each other films and turn them on to various directors. Um, and in 1980, he hands Scorsese a copy of Eden Warden's novel and thinks it might make a good movie. Scorsese picks it up, puts it by his bedside, leaves it alone. He's recovering from his heart attack. He's making Raging Bull. Uh, he is not, uh, is just quit cocaine in order to make Raging Bull, because De Niro basically said, get the fuck off cocaine, get your wife together and come make Raging Bull with me. And he is in a world of urban grit, and the social-mannered world of age innocence is completely impenetrable to him. In 1987, two things happen. Uh, it's the run-up to making The Last Temptation of Christ, which was originally written by Paul Schrader years prior, mm -hmm. um, but he brings in Jay Cox to do a rewrite. Uh, Jay Cox does not get credited for this rewrite because of a lot of boring Writers Guild stuff mm -hmm. and Paul Schrader being a dick, who wouldn't even let um, get a thank you on the film, because that's what the Writers Guild is like. Um, so, either coincidentally... Or either because Jay Cox is there being like, hey, did you ever look at that book I loaned you? Um, <laughs> Scorsese picks up Innocent, The Age of Innocence, and he loves it. And so they get to work, they schedule a meeting, and the two of them have both marked up their copies, open to page one, they've got the same marks, and Scorsese's like, turn to page 12. They look at page 12, same marks. So they go through the book and like they've sort of underlined or circled like 95% of the same stuff. Wow. They're on the same creative wavelength. They talk about while he's making, you know, finishing up the age, uh, finishing up Last Temptation of Christ and prepping Goodfellas and then in a window of 23 days right before he shoots Goodfellas um, they write the script uh, for this and start working on getting funding together. Um, Scorsese does Goodfellas. Uh, Universal, who he has an agreement with this point um pressures him into doing cape fear which spielberg was going to direct um but he comes along and does that and then he gets age of innocence set up for the film after that so they film it in 82 um they try to get it out for christmas but uh he can't get it done and so they delay it till venice so it winds up being one of his longest edits because he has an extra eight months so they can they can fuck around and that was 92 it. by the way 92 does 82 excuse yeah. me <laughs> okay um only there was autocorrect. Um, <laughs> so what is The Age of Innocence? The Age of Innocence is set in 1870s New York um, and stars Daniel Day-Lewis as Newland Archer, uh, Winona Ryder as his betrothed Mae Weiland, and Michelle Pfeiffer as the Countess Olenska, recently departed from Europe and the blossoming object of Archer's affection at a time when social structures would make such an arrangement impossible. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the supporting cast, but I will bring up one name in particular, um, Joanne Woodward, who never appears on screen, but has a central role as the narrator using passages from Warden's book, which I should note is actually also historical fiction, when she published it in 1920 based on her memories of growing up during that era. Um, One of the best narration, such an integral part of the whole film. Caught me unawares, actually, because I wasn't expecting it. When it no. started, and suddenly this narration came in, and I'm like, I was... And then when I realised yeah, it was Joanne Woodward. Room, trying to work out yeah. which so characters this was. But then it took a few minutes to realise this, is, this yeah. is the voice of God. And I think yeah. it's into it, because there's so much that's unsaid in the film, and there's still so much detail that's not in there. I, one thing I'll mention is, like, there's a bit where they get to a dance, and they put a stack of gloves at the 
front and move on. Mm. And it's never mentioned or explained, but the reason for that is that after every dance with a woman, because you dance with several women over mm. the course of the night, because this was okay at the time, um, you would change your gloves. And so you would be expected to bring several sets of gloves, so you would have gloves to change wow. into. Um, but that's just an observed detail. Um, the script is largely faithful, uh, apart from condensing. There's two characters that are removed, but just it's mostly getting it there. In terms of the visual antecedents, um, Scorsese talks a lot about a William Wyler film, The Heiress, as well as um, Visconti, um, particularly The Leopard, um, in terms of how to take this sort of incredibly wealthy, emotionally repressed milieu and transform mm -hmm. it into a form of storytelling that actually people will be able to connect with, despite the incredibly repressed and uh, mannered characters. Um, the Visconti influence led him to bring on an Italian production designer, Dante Ferretti, and costume designer, Gabriella Piscucci, um, which part of the challenge was um, when you do a period piece in Europe, all those castles are around. When you do a period piece in America, all those houses are gone. Mm. Uh, and so they had to go all over the place in New York and other, Philadelphia and other places to find places. They had to build sets. They had to, and ba basically they storyboarded and pre-designed the shit out of it. So like Michelle Pfeiffer's house doesn't have almost any shoot off. It's almost like we we're talking about Night of the Hunter the other time. Mm. There's like a certain amount of it that exists and, but it only exists in like a certain range and it's like things like that. Um, so many of the paintings were uh, recreated from paintings of the time. Uh, and the, um, one of the most amusing period detail notes is they had a full-time onset etiquette consultant, Lily <laughs> Lodge. Um, and of course it's probably not a surprise that um, for a period film, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, who usually just throws himself into things without uh, much preparation, uh, took an apartment of his own that was decorated in 1870s style and used vintage-style shaving products every day uh, before uh, coming to set and would only be referred to on set as Newland. You know, that's actually um, a lot less than I was expecting. I was expecting him to hire two footmen and <laughs> at least six months beforehand and, and drive around New York City in a horse-drawn carriage because, I mean, we know Daniel Day-Lewis, well, yeah, yeah. what I he mean, does. Let's he's, face it, usually he's a flippity gibbet. Exactly. He just no. doesn't yeah. care. It's like, oh, I'm going to be on uh, The Last of the Mohicans. Well, that's fine. I'll just be on the set tomorrow. No, yeah. no, I'm going to go and build a log cabin. <laughs> by You're an actor. <laughs> Try acting, dear boy. It's much easier. <laughs> Um, behind the camera, um, he's working with a lot of the same people around this time. I mean, obviously, he's always got Thelma by his side, but he's brought back Michael Bauhaus, who shot Goodfellas, and Elmer Bernstein, who was the composer for Cape Fear. Mm -hmm. And um, around this time, Elaine and Saul Bass are doing his titles as well. Oh, so, yes. they, And the titles of this film are just incredible, and mm -hmm. um, both as a technical accomplishment in their own right, but also in setting up both the floral motif and the color motifs of the film, as well as foregrounding Edith Warden's words. Um, you can tell they designed the credits because they've got a very big credit. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes. Credits by Saul Bass. Yeah. As the it's, man with the biggest credit. <laughs> um, so yeah, premiered at Venice, as I said, got, went on to get released that uh, fall in the States, grew 68 million worldwide on a 34 million budget, not a huge hit, um, but obviously will eventually recruit on video. 
generally received good reviews and five Oscar, nom- Oscar nominations, uh, with Piscucci winning for Best Costume Design, the others being Production Design, Supporting Actress for Winona Ryder, Best Score, and uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Wow. And uh, Cox and Scorsese would reteam. Um, in fact, they were already working on a script then for Gangs of New York, which then took something like 11 years to come out <laughs> and then and then uh, silence which didn't come out till 2016 i haven't seen um, either of those i've seen gangs of new york but yeah oh, they're, they're, yeah. Um, yeah. silence is amazing gangs of new york is a problem which is yeah. about to get a tv series oh really yeah that's okay. um, hbo strange okay oh everything's gonna do i haven't even seen so. gangs of london yet <laughs> so uh, which it's is supposed still, to be really good have you seen i've yeah. seen the first couple of episodes and the violence is so much right. that I found it a little bit on the queasy side yeah. um. Um, so the real question here of course is after the promise of I call first what does Roger Ebert think of Scorsese <laughs> Quo- quote Raj the story told here is brutal and bloody the story of a man's passion crushed his heart defeated Yet it is also much more in the last scene of the film, which pulls everything together, is almost unbearably pointed. Mm. He then added the film to his Great Movies collection, which is his ongoing list of the great movies of all time, christening it as one of Scorsese's greatest films. Martin Scorsese called it his most violent film, and it's not violent in... It is PG. It is absolutely PG. But it's violent in emotion. Yes. Okay, so now... um, I already know what he thinks. Um, Skeet, <laughs> oh, you... I've been playing my cards so close yeah, to my chest, I don't know what <laughs> I think. Uh, um, but as someone who is dreading sitting down to this, and somebody who is a rough sell on a 138-minute minute Scorsese historical, historical romantic, romantic drama, drama, what do you think? Well, and bearing in mind, we don't care really... what you think no, if you don't like I'm it. I'm well aware that I can suck <laughs> off if I don't like it. But here's what what say. are you doing in your house? <laughs> <laughs> here's what I'm going to say. I knew of this film. I, is it a movie that I had ever seen before? No. Is it a movie I'd ever intended seeing? No. Is it a movie that I would have probably sat down and said, yeah, let's have a look at it? No. Did yeah. I enjoy it? Yes. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Testify. Sons of bitches. You got me. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's, it's just a visual treat. I have mm. to agree with you, though. I, it was a sort of film I remember the trailer would turn up a lot mm. it's the sort of film I would emigrate to avoid yeah <laughs> and I just was in no way interested and I would probably have spent the rest of my life not seeing it yet somehow when you suggested it as an option it, I thought oh why let's not let's do it let's do it and I I mean I put it off for a long time mm. and then I I mean it couldn't it's been since I um, got married and we rented it from Vidion so it would be roughly five to seven years ago I was kind of like well let's take the Scorsese box and um, had Sarah already seen Sarah it? Sarah had seen it um, but she hadn't seen it for a long time and she no. wanted to revisit it uh, and my first letterbox review was so I think I have a new favorite Scorsese movie <laughs> um, I think Casino still pips it to the post but it's uh, it's just so well observed mm-hmm. and has so so much fresh style to it. There's an element at the beginning where um, he's looking through opera glasses and there's this same yes. this short of thing. Little... And I was watching the behind the scenes interviews on the um, 
Criterion disc, and he talks about how Stan Brakhage was an influence for that. I'm like, who expects to be influenced by Stan Brakhage in a period piece? And you see so much of that. You see tracking shots that rival anything in Goodfellas. You know, you just see this um, ex incredibly expressive use of color. You see Winona Ryder sit up at a scene near the end that takes four cuts and completely changes the power scale of the film. Mm -hmm. And you see somebody who's just thinking about how he can take this buttoned up, stayed thing and make it hit your heart with every single shot. Yeah. And, I, and right off the bat, I thought I was in trouble right off the bat because the opening scenes when that narration kicks in and it begins mm. talking, introducing the characters in, a, in the ballroom scene. During the scene, opera, During yes. the opera and then at the ballroom scene and there's all the dialogue, there's no dialogue and it's Joanne Woodward talking about all these characters and all their positions in society and I thought to myself, I'm going to need a fucking flowchart here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need to record this and play it back because I will never remember the characters. And no, because the distinct characters, some of the characters appear in that opening scene, and then you don't see them again for another hour. Yeah. Well, that was interesting because the I knew practically nothing about the film other than the main leads. The camera first finds Richard E. Grant, Richard e. Grant. and I think, great, he's a major character in this. Yes. This is going to be and amazing. And he's what I was talking about. He disappears for nearly he, an hour. He's wallpaper. When he does show up again, yeah. he's yeah, barely he's, in there. No, um, but you. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, you still remember. Oh, okay. There's Richard e. Grant as mm. you know, and you remember the character in there. It's and it it as I say, it became this this. It's just like, it's so well shot, and you, you're talking about the the opera glass scene, and there's a, those, those little quick cuts again, which we saw mm. in Boxcar Bertha, and I'd yeah. seen these with, basically within the space of two days, and it. It was just, okay, now I can see. That was his fledgling effort, and this is what he can do yeah. with $35 million mm. and years, decades now mm. of experience. Yeah, I was I was not expecting to have liked as much as I was. Would I sit down and watch it again tomorrow? Eh, maybe not, but maybe, I'm glad I watched it. Maybe the day after tomorrow. Maybe, yeah, eventually. Yeah. Maybe, give, me, give me another mm. five or ten years. But Sumptuous, yeah, I think, is a word that could be... Um, couldn't possibly be overused for this no. film. And it's the detail. Just... The, mm, I'm, a, the... I'm a foodie, and every time they sat down to dinner, yes. and they would do those, those little montages of placing yeah, a yeah. plate in front of them, and I wanted to pause. You know, I didn't because I'm, I'm trying to watch this movie as a movie, not not as a fruit, you know, get up and go make a cup of coffee. I wanted to watch this thing through. But I wanted to pause and just look at those because it's, yeah. it's these perfectly proportioned dishes that would have been made in the 1870s and 12 courses every single night every single yeah. night and you can tell that they have researched those things to the minutest detail i was reading something about how there's a particular story point at, um when they have that dinner for the countess and because there's a whole bit about how basically like she's an outcast and so uh newland prevails upon the one of the most influential people in town to host a dinner party after she's mm. After the countenance has been scorned, and so it becomes the must-see event. And there's an eighth course there that I forget what it's called, but it was like something that was very intentionally designed as, oh, this isn't just another dinner party, you know, this is like mm. meant to be a dish that, you know, people will be talking about, oh, you know, and they serve, you know. <laughs> Some of the things they, they, they mention and they don't explain, like Russian punch. They, and, yeah. They, and they, you know, they serve Russian punch. And I did a little Google, and it's this very intricate-looking punch with egg white floating on mm. the top of it and it's you know it's just these sort of things which if you if you know about it or if you did the research later you would find that yeah. this is mm. some of the most you know and in labor intensive things you could do so and the character work in this i i, lo 
I was surprised how much I was enthralled by Winona Ryder's mm. performance. And the fact that she's this meek and mild, tell-me-what-to-do type woman. The moment she's married, you see her walking through a crowd of people and she has a force that she has not shown mm. at any other point in the movie. And there's... And, I mean, she turns out to be the major villain, but only in a really human way. It's, I don't think it's even fair to call her a villain. It's, because like, she's able to... Society is the villain, yeah, in a way. True. But she's and, able to use society to achieve yes. what she wants and to put pressure on those she needs to put pressure in order to achieve what she wants. But I think... Um, I think and this is where the last scene is really important. Because yeah. if it had ended... And we'll just get deep into spoiler points here. Yeah, I mean, because basically, this this scene is that we're talking about is where, where Winona Ryder says, "You're not consorting with the Countess anymore. You're married. Grow the fuck up. Get your act together." But she never in the nicest so language possible yeah. because yeah. everybody in this film uses the nicest yeah. language possible, even as they're slitting each other's throats. Yeah, absolutely. And then we see the life that he has as a yes. result of that and the children that he has as a result of that. And Robert Sean Leonard. Yes, Robert Sean Leonard. A, a really and, nice role, too. Yeah. yeah. And and then we get to this final scene, mm. um, and this is the emotional welling, and even just thinking about it, I just got that little mm, emotional <laughs> well of, you know, coincidence, meaning that Daniel Day-Lewis is now sitting outside the courtyard as his well-meaning and completely ignorant son yes. goes up to re- goes up to catch up with the Countess Olenska, and um, he tells his son that he'll be up there, and he just, just tell him I'm old-fashioned. Walks <laughs> away yeah. because what is the point? And no. you can read that as heartbreak, or yeah. you can read that as him finally understanding what his life has meant without her. Mm. And I I feel like either of those are valid reasons, but I feel like. The second one lands for me better. There's just mm. that glint of the um, window as it's cleaning that's meant to yes. evoke these kind of that kind of moment. It was and just yeah, mm. oh yeah, it's so beautiful, and and I I can't ima- it it couldn't have been satisfying if he if he went up. No, not in the same way. I don't think. No, I, I can't imagine. It's um, yeah. It was ah. Oh, I do is. I just adored this movie and I had no idea and that's the great thing is that maybe sometimes going to a film with under duress but I mean yeah, not in a, not not like a kicking and screaming a, kind of way but, something outside the comfort zone yeah, it's yeah. A, or, or sort of a come on now entertain me yeah well the, the, and I, I, have, to, and I have to say my favourite character oh wow oh. Miriam uh, Margolis, is that how it's pronounced? Margolis. Margolis. Yeah. Margolis Unbelievably yeah. funny in this movie. Yeah. She was just... supposed to be about 100 pounds heavier, but yeah. Oh, <laughs> what, but I think yeah. she is in the book. But she but, gave uh, yeah. the, I mean, she gave the impression of that, even though she wasn't carrying the weight. And, just, and she, just well, the she was playing 40 years older than she was. Older than she was. And she, she's, she's, she's that age now, isn't she, yeah. really? Or? It's, incidentally, the blonde and brunette leads were supposed to be reversed as well. So, like... Um, in the book, the Countess is a dark-haired woman, oh. and um, Newland's young uh, fiance is blonde-haired. Um, but they always thought Michelle Pfeiffer and Winona Ryder would be perfect, and so they just threw that out. So it's interesting the things that change in 
adaptation. Yes. To get back to your point, though, I think I do think expectations are such a huge thing mm. when you watch a film. And it was interesting you talked about the rewatchability. Even though I really loved this film the first time, I bought the Criterion of it like in 2019 or 2020, and it's been sitting on my shelf for a while because I'm just like, ah. Uh, it was like kind of like the 20 year expectation kept creeping back into my headspace. It's like, oh, it was better than my expectations, but it's probably mm. not actually yeah. that good. It yeah. was just better than I thought. And I watched it a second time. It's like, it's pretty much that damn good. And it's, you know, it's, um, and conversely, like, I mean, I just saw, um, Tar with, uh, Kate Blanchett and, um, and I really want to watch it again because it's definitely a very, very, very good film, but I'd heard so much about it and had it so hyped yeah. that on a first viewing, I'm like, it didn't quite hit the uh, level that yeah, yeah. I was hoping it would hit for me. Is it cinematic, um, is it, or is it more just about performance, that type of uh, tar? Tar, uh, tar, to briefly digress into that, tar is quite cinematic there are some be- it's shot beautifully and there's some i think it's nominated for best cinematography and if not oh, right. it would be a deserving candidate there's some great long takes there's some great um really d- low light photography um a relatively small amount of the film is performance um so yeah uh and and also the the storytelling rhythms are very unusual and interesting and use uh, some sometimes some very choppy editing and sometimes some very incredibly lengthy scenes in various ways. It feels very cinematic and all those oh, and uses so. the tool and the use of sound as well. So that's that's released here uh, in a week tomorrow. Tomorrow, I think okay. actually there's preview screenings tonight. Oh, so right. um, so hopefully it's still playing by the time we get this online because we're recording this a couple weeks in advance. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I I do think and conversely like with Nope, yeah. I had such high. If, um, which if, we discussed if you last overhype time. it in your yeah. head, you're never gonna. It's never gonna live up to what yeah. you had. I well, mean, I had um, with with this film. Um, the the other time I had a similar reaction to, as in deeply fell in love with, but no expectation for, was Phantom Thread, which was another one. A, yeah. a coincidence that it's Daniel Day Lewis, but it's another one where it it looks all kind of fusty and. So why do you think we all hate costume dramas? Because the interesting thing... I don't. Or have have an aversion to, because, I mean, I I definitely share that, and I was not super psyched for Phantom Thread, and I loved it. Oh my God, that's Um, an amazing... I put off Amadeus for 30 years because of... Oh, Amadeus is some of the best... I mean, it's that scene where they're creating music together, the... um, Salieri yeah. and Amadeus is one of the best scenes ever on celluloid, ever, mm. ever. Yeah. I'll fight you if you disagree. <laughs> but sometimes mm. but ever. big costume dramas, you think, okay, this is Oscar bait. This is, yeah. and if, you, if you're not I think a, particularly of the yeah. era that we grew up in, I think yeah. if you look at the last Montana 10 years of Oscar, you won't those, find out, those, yeah. find as many of those. But yeah. I do feel like yeah. that in, in the like, 70s, yeah. 80s, 90s and also there's this British film tradition as well that was kind of reaching its apex and I feel like you know the sort of Jane Austen adaptation like why you know like in the late 90s early 2000s it was just this huge cottage industry I remember as a kid on TV on um, because we had two channels um, one and two 
And I love how you're not even joking. No. <laughs> no. When no. TV3 came along, it's like, holy shit, you, you can have three channels now? Boom. Yeah. Wow. World just opened. Yeah. But um, there was... There were British TV shows on in the afternoon, um, such as the Oneidan Line. Oh, God. And Upstairs, Downstairs. Upstairs, Downstairs in particular to what we're talking about was a fusty period piece. It's Downton Abbey without an engine. Right. (laughs) Ascension. It's along, yep. And and I think that's a lot of where we get that attitude of yeah. of period pieces yeah. because they were slow. The Oneidan Line had a great theme, and then after it was just people on yeah. cardboardy looking oh, BBC which the sets talking. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, for um, uh, for Hudsucker Proxy. Oh yeah, there you go. But yeah, those 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 dusty old BBC costume dramas that our parents watched in the seventies pro- and New Zealand especially probably coloured. Right. Oh, I, I, I mean, I, so, I, yeah. I, when I was watching this, I did ask Dawn if she'd seen this movie, seen Age of Innocence, and she said yes, yeah, she had seen it. Of course, not for a long time, right. but definitely it was as when it came out in nineteen ninety three, I would have been twenty. Right. Chances of me seeing <laughs> Age of Innocence at the age of 20 in 1993. Fuck that. No, I'm going to yeah. the crow. Sorry. <laughs> it would never have crossed my radar. It's But, yeah, this is this was this was eye-opening. And, it's, I mean, I shouldn't be because it's Scorsese. And he, you know, even though, as I say, there's, there's certain directors, <clears throat> Kubrick, who, who leave me cold, who are well-regarded and just not me, I can't say I've ever really had a bad time watching a Scorsese film. And this one, you could pause this at any time in that two-hour and 18-minute running time. And frame what is on screen and put it on the wall because some, it is gorgeous. Absolutely, yeah. and in some cases, it actually felt like an, another gangster film, just in in mm. terms of how they showed those uh, the balls. The well, you're going you're going the, to these people to ask for favors. Absolutely, and you're and, was, you're and you're sharing trading influence, and you're doing all of these things, and you're and the sumptuous people whose the, debts need to be paid off. Yeah, and and, and Scorsese has always had a relationship with food. On yeah. cinema, and so there's that again, and yeah, it's there's there's an incredible violence in this movie. It's um, and it it, it is emotional, and it it's is mental violence, yeah, and it, yeah. mental as hell. Yeah. It's uh, and it's just as I I'm so I was so on board for it. Seriously, From, I want that shot of, of Michelle Pfeiffer down on the on the beach on my wall. Because, oh yeah! Oh my god! Well, that was yeah because I mean that became such an integral yeah. part of the whole yeah. movie. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, we we liked this film. We, we did like this yeah, film. We I, liked it a lot. I think that I think that Scorsese's '90s, like often people talk about his '70s and '80s films, and I think when you look at the '90s and you kind of people looked at superficially as like. I mean, Goodfellas is 1990, and so people, depending on how you consider your decade, that might be considered the 80s. But then you have Cape Fear, you have Age of Innocence, you have Casino, you have Last Temptation, not Last Temptation, excuse me, you have uh, Kundun. Um, You have a lot of really intriguing films. I don't know that I've seen much of his nights. Beautiful and doing different things a lot of the time than what people Mm. expect him to do. Or films that get very instantly dismissed as retreads, which is in fact how uh, Casino was originally received. It's just like, um, oh, it's just like good fellas too. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like it's not really that at all on so many mm. 
levels. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it'll be interesting. Um, I would be keen, and I don't know how you guys feel, but um, there's a lot of Scorsese that I would like to mop up, so to speak. There's a lot I haven't seen. I've never been disappointed. There's Raging Bull. I can acknowledge it's probably more me than the film. I know right. that it's. I know it's a great film. I and I had all the evidence of it. I just found the characters unlikable. Mm-hmm. So I know that actually seeing some more Scorsese will be worthwhile. Mm. Uh, that can probably be arranged. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say the only one I've, I've watched which just didn't resonate for me, and it, I could still say it was a well-made film, was The Aviator. Right, The Aviator for me. Yeah, that didn't. At the end of it, me. was like, eh, it didn't really hit. It wasn't, but it's. I mean, it's Scorsese. It's not a bad film. It's just it was not my type of film. Mm. Whereas other directors that I love, there's always at least one film where I'm just like, well, that I'm never going to watch again because mm. it's it's you know an early effort. It's it's poor. It's you know badly made. He's he's had that talent from that those opening movies. Apart from the obviously his very first one that you yeah. say is not worth watching, but. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd say it's worth watching, but you know, definitely a, with um, a lot, of, a lot of caveats. Yeah. Well, but yeah, I mean, I didn't like bringing out the dead the first time I watched oh, it, I really and then I went back that. to that, and I just absolutely loved it because I finally got it. Because you know, did you pa- see it in the cinema? I saw it in the cinema, uh, and I think I found it. At that point, Nicolas Cage seemed extreme. These days, Nicolas Cage seems restrained. Uh, I had also seen an indie film called Broken Vessels, which portrayed that uh, reality in a much more realistic uh. milieu. It's very obscure, but it just happened to have come out around the same time. And so that was my, like, oh, this film does it better, annoying 20-year-old like, kind of thing. But also, uh, I think, like, seeing it... Uh, through the lens of having seen a lot of Paul Schrader films, and Schrader mm. is so about martyrdom, and Bringing Out the Dead is essentially about a character who is really desperate to be a martyr, and nobody will let him. And it's actually hysterical when you watch it through that lens. Well, I, it's I the found funniest. it funny when I wasn't looking yeah, through it's that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's objectively funny anyway in a lot of ways, but it's and just Cliff Curtis quite, yeah. the revelation in that. He is so good. I found with Aviator, I didn't quite click but i've i i've only beca- i've only enjoyed leonardo dicaprio roles once he started to resemble the frog <laughs> the, 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 the less mm. attra- uh, if it if, if mr dicaprio's lawyers are listening i didn't fucking say that <laughs> the, no but but i find the less attractive he looks the more character he plays the the less sort of pretty boy he is and it's I find him more compelling. I it's Bloodstone was the first time I really enjoyed him. Blood Diamond? Yeah, that that because no, Bloodstone's a, yeah, a, a really yeah. crappy horror thing, I think. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But Blood Diamond's I I I've never gone back to it, but I remember really enjoying him because he was a, he wasn't the the sort of uh peachy keen lead. He was a bit more grimy and a bit uh, and of course, once upon a time, in Hollywood. In Hollywood, did you and, like Shutter Island? And I did didn't. I didn't I really connect with that I either. Quite but, intriguing. I mean, but again, that was during the period of, of time where, where I didn't like yeah, him. It's that one of those ones where I really liked it, and then about six months later, I probably couldn't tell you much about the plot anymore. And it's, but it's one I would probably revisit, and I do mm. remember enjoying it. It just didn't stick with me like some of his other ones, but it, it definitely 
you know, at the time, uh, yeah, it was, at think, the time well spent. I'd hold up Catch Me as If You Can as the first Leonardo performance I liked. Yeah, um, I, and wasn't, then... I wasn't on board at that time. I, and so, sometimes I think it would be nice to go back and these films that you didn't necessarily like, but you didn't hate. Yeah. And But there was clearly a little bit of prejudice. So, I mean, I've tried to do that with Tom Cruise and I've come to terms with the fact that the guy can act. He just has a giant ego and won't get out of his own way yeah. a lot of the time, which I but find he's a better bond take, than but Bond he... right now. He's a better yeah. Bond than Bond for me. That for me, I know we discussed this a while back that you guys still like the Bonds and I'm I'm Mission Impossible guy now because fuck me, those films are great. <laughs> yeah. I, I've already forgotten what was the last Bond. Um, oh, uh, no, no, time no time to, to die. die. No time to yeah. die. Yeah, that kind of says probably how I feel. About <laughs> oh, I, I loved No Time to Die. I thought it was an excellent film and uh, better than the Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> Fine. Fine. Well. Okay, well, there won't be any more episodes because we're not going to have here. That's right. In conclusion, one, so. Age of Innocence or Boxcar Bertha? Oh, Age of Innocence. Age of Innocence. Yes. Age of Innocence. I, I thought so. <laughs> it's a fucking fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, do yourself yeah. a favor and watch it. It's just wonderful. Yeah, yeah so if a Godfrey Ho fan can say, go watch Age of Innocence, go watch Age of Innocence. But follow it up with a Godfrey Ho film. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, Till next time, may your cinema have the adequate amount of ninjas in it. <laughs> Which is all of them. <laughs>